about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Welcome to a new series. Uh, What we're planning to do is uh, preach through the whole of Acts. You'll be pleased to know we're going to do it in 10 year, 10, 10 year, 10, (laughs) 10 week lots. So 10 weeks, a little break and then another 10 weeks. And we're starting off with the first 11 chapters. And we're kind of thinking through what is Jesus doing now? Um, You you might have noticed last week we celebrated Jesus' death and resurrection. Fantastic. And in this passage today, we hear that Jesus ascends into heaven. So a fairly logical question is, so what's Jesus doing now? Um, And as we unpack this over the next um, 10 weeks, we'll kind of get a picture of how that works. Now, I thought the way we would proceed today is to basically just look at the passage together. Um, We'll work our way through the passage and note what's going on and start thinking about uh, the book of Acts and how it actually works and how it might apply to us as well. Well, let's start at the very beginning because that's a very good place to start. Um, And Acts chapter 1 begins this way. Fiona really likes those kind of things, so she was going yay. Um, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about uh, all that Jesus began to do and teach. I love that word began uh, because it suggests that there's a past and that there's a future. You might be familiar with the fact that Acts and Luke are written by the same people. And so when you go back to the discover is that Luke's set out to write life so that we can have certainty about what happened to Jesus. So he collects all the data, he puts it all together, he tells Jesus' story, he talks about Jesus, and he tells us what happens in Jesus' life. But as he starts his second volume, what he does is begin to talk about what's going to happen with Jesus in the future. It's going to be talking about what is Jesus doing now. Now, one of the tricky things about Acts is the way that it works. How do we actually view what's going on in Acts? Some people view it a bit like the Colosseum. That's a really interesting bit of history. That happened then. It's interesting to see God at work in Acts, to see how the church began. Hmm, that's interesting. But it's got nothing to do with now and nothing to do with the way that Jesus acts now because, actually, it's way in the past and we're in a different era and at a different time. And so it doesn't actually have much to say to us, but it is interesting to kind of observe and and understand the detail. Others see it a bit more like a blueprint. And so they look at the book of Acts and say, oh, here's the established church and this is what it looked like. And therefore, this is a blueprint for all churches throughout time. And people get very frustrated at that point because 
the amazing things that are happening in Acts, like Paul and a hanky and people getting healed and tongues of fire on people and all kinds of things, don't appear to be happening around us. And so for some people, this becomes a great source of stress because we're not being the church that is in Acts as we see it. I think those two ways are interesting and certainly they're things worth considering about what they have to say. As I come to Acts, though, I want to suggest to us that actually another way of seeing it is that Jesus is working in people's lives and providing a foundation for us to understand how he's going to continue to work. So that means that not everything in Acts is going to happen now, but things that are happening in Acts give us a sense of how Jesus is going to go about reigning as King Jesus. Uh, You might notice the name of the book is the Acts of the Apostles. I think that's a misnaming. It's actually about the Acts of Jesus and what he's doing as he reigns. Um, And that's actually the challenge of the Bible. We often come to it saying it's about me when it's actually about Jesus. And we see that because early on, he's been training his disciples. And you might remember in the end of Acts chapter 24, he was talking to his disciples. He talked to the people on the road to Emmaus and explained all the scriptures to them. Last week we heard a little bit of the fact that he was explaining to his disciples in the beginning of Acts, chapter 1. And what we notice is that Jesus spends time with his disciples preparing them for when he's going to leave. Now, if you like, this is a bit of a go-deeper moment. He presented himself and gave many convincing proofs. Once again, the proofs are important. He appeared to them over 40 days and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Um, Can I just say, just off the side here, um, some people have said to me, go deeper sounds really confusing. I don't know what it's about. I guess we just haven't explained it very well. That's my fault. Let me see if I can explain a little bit about what we're talking about when we talk about go deeper. And if you haven't been here for the last few weeks, you missed out on us talking about go deeper. Basically, the way go deeper is this. The way it works is like this. What we're wanting to do is encourage one another to go deeper with each other. Now, sometimes that could mean deep and meaningful conversations. But actually what we're trying to encourage one another to do is to work out how do we speak about Jesus into each other's lives? How do we point people as we gather together week by week to Jesus? What can we say to one another that encourages us and builds one another up and points us to Jesus? Rather than just, and it's important to talk about the weather, but rather than just talking about the weather, what does it look like for us to speak Jesus' words into each other's lives and to go deeper with one another like that? What's also true, and this is the second bit, is that really the only way we can go deeper with one another is if we let God go deeper with us. If we let him kind of deal with our hearts, challenge our thoughts, challenge our way of operating. And so when we talk about deeper, we're really talking about two things, God going deeper with us 
and us finding ways to speak into people's lives about Jesus. I hope that's a bit clearer because that's what Jesus is doing here. The disciples, he's training them and he's speaking to them about the kingdom of God. Now, for us, that is not such a loaded term, but for our disciple friends, that was a hugely loaded term. They lived in a time where they understood the Old Testament, they understood what God was doing, and they understood that something amazing was taking place. They would have known passages like Isaiah chapter 32, verse 1. See, a king will reign in righteousness and rulers will rule with justice. There's a time coming when the king will reign with righteousness, will set everything right. In Daniel 7, we, think, we hear of the ancient of days and we hear about a kingly person who will come with authority and glory and sovereign power and all the nations will worship him. And his kingdom will not be destroyed. The disciples lived in a world where they understood that that's what was being said. And in fact, as Jesus ends his ministry, he says to them, for I tell you, I will not eat again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. You can see all the expectations being heightened here. As Jesus speaks to them about the kingdom of God, they're thinking, oh, it's, it's, it's the Messiah. He's risen from the dead and he's bringing in the kingdom. This is the moment, and we're part of this moment. Jesus has also said to them, go back and wait. So can you imagine? You've been taught by Jesus, and then you have to wait. It'd be like trying to sit on your hands when you just want to get going. But the expectation has been built, and in fact, he says there's, there's the Holy Spirit coming, and if, if we read in Joel, we know that there's a Spirit coming. Like, you, you can just, it would be palpable, the excitement. And yet there's a problem. The disciples haven't quite grasped what is going on here. And we see this in this teachable moment that Jesus uses. Jesus says to them, they're gathered around him and they ask him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? They've had all this instruction. They've been taken through the Old Testament. God, uh, Jesus has been speaking into their lives in a quite remarkable ways. They've witnessed the resurrection. And their conclusion is, ah, this is Israel's time. Israel will reign. Israel will be the centre of the universe. And all the nations will come here to the temple. Now, of course, there are some Christians who still believe this. If you believe this is a blueprint, that's what you might believe. And so I've bumped into people who are trying to restore Israel on this basis. But Jesus says to them, actually, there's something different going on here. I want to talk to you about what's actually going on here. Basically, you won't know the times or the dates when the Father has set by his own authority. Actually, you don't understand the kingdom and how it's going to work and how I'm going to reign. And as, yes, it has come in, but it's not quite there yet and there's more to do. And we live in this tension between now and when I'll come back. And so therefore, you don't know the details of how all of this is going to work in terms of particularly when I'm going to come back. 
Now, of course, if you hear of those groups that have set the time for when Jesus is coming back, please ignore them. Because it's very clearly saying uh, Jesus' timing is his own, is his father's. Um, there was a group in Ride, I remember when I was there. Uh, they had set the time for when the year 2000 uh, switched over um, and sold houses and done all kinds of different things and just absolute devastation. Um, you can imagine the hurt and the pain it caused because someone did not take note of what the scriptures actually have to say. And so it's important to notice that Jesus is correcting their understanding of scriptures and that, that of course, is what scriptures are meant to do, correct our understanding. We don't always have it right. And so Jesus is speaking into their lives. And he's saying to them, actually, I'm going to reign. Notice, I'm going to be taken up before your very eyes. By the way, I think the disciples here are just kind of like gobsmacked. We actually know that they are because they stand there for a while staring into the, the distance like, what, what just happened? We've been here with 40 days for Je- with Jesus. He's just been resurrected. And what, you're going? It just doesn't make any sense at all. But notice how Jesus will reign. Notice how Jesus will exercise his kingdomly rule. Notice what he says to them. He says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, throughout this passage, it's also true to say that Jesus reigns in other ways. He's going to send his spirit. He's going to teach his word through the Holy Spirit. He's going to gather people in his name. He's going to gather leaders to appoint other leaders. That's all going to take place within this first chapter, and we we will see that unfold through the rest of Acts. But at this point in time, I think the focus is that they will be his witnesses. Now, the importance of the witnesses becomes even more, becomes clearer when we look towards the end of the chapter. And you might remember as we read this out, the people gathered in Jesus' name. There's about 120 of them. Um, Just imagine, actually, can you imagine the joke this sounds like? Like, I want to reign throughout all the earth and see all the nations of the earth come to know Jesus. And I'm starting with a bunch of disciples, you know, fishermen and tax collectors and people like that, and about 120 other people altogether, maybe, and we're going to change the whole world and turn the whole world upside down. Just imagine how ludicrous that felt at that particular point in time, or how ludicrous it looks from our point of view. But of course it's not. Because Jesus is choosing to reign, he's ascended to heaven, and he's choosing to reign through witnesses. Now it turns out that it becomes important to replace Judas with another witness. Uh, There are 12 tribes of Israel, 12 witnesses to what Jesus did. That's kind of the link we can make there. But here is a moment of, well, how do we understand what Jesus is doing? How do we understand Acts? How does Acts work at this moment? If you're a person who believes it's a bit like history, you will say at this moment, well, clearly, one of the criteria to be a witness is to have viewed Jesus' death, life, death and resurrection. It's merely a historical moment because it's about being witnesses to Jesus' life, death and resurrection. That's great. 
we know it's true, but it's a historical moment. For others, though, they might see this as a moment of saying, okay, well, see, Matthias was appointed, so clearly new apostles can be appointed over a period of time. Ah, okay. And so there are churches that are appointing apostles in the same kind of vein, using this as a blueprint for what the church should do. I want to suggest, though, it's a foundation, it's a way of thinking about what Jesus is going to do uh, throughout eternity, in our time. What he's saying is, I'm going to seek to reign, to bring in my kingdom, through the people I call to myself. Our role can't be exactly the same as that. Of course it can't. We are not physical We haven't seen Jesus physically rise from the dead. We weren't there. But we can attest to Jesus. We can point to Jesus. We can be his people working on his behalf, pointing people to Jesus. And of course, that's why we have continued with this idea of go public. Because go public is about pointing people to Jesus. Now, if you've been around churches for a little while, at this point you're feeling guilty. Um, And if you're me, I'm feeling guilty. And I'm thinking of all those times where I've particularly failed at this and how sometimes I'm actually really not that interested in doing it. Like, do I really have to raise this? Um, I, I feel quite uncomfortable about the idea that God wants to work with me, work through me in this way. Can't, can't you just pick another way? Um, I, I, you know, this idea of pointing people to Jesus seems like a bit steep. Uh, what, what can I do to get out of this? Well, you wouldn't be the first person who's felt that. And so how does this passage speak to us at that moment? Well, it's true that we fail. And it's true that we point, fail to point people to Jesus in the way that he's called us to. You may have noticed there's another figure in this passage, and that is Judas. Let's just consider him for a moment. What's so interesting about Judas, to my, from my point of view, is the way Luke writes about him, and he says he was one of our own number, like he's close, he's walked with Jesus, he's talked with Jesus, he knows Jesus is alive, and he's also shared in the ministry of Jesus. He's been one of those who's gone out into the highways and byways and and said, look at Jesus. He is as close as you can get. And yet he fails. He fails in a, a spectacular way, I guess you could say. He betrays Jesus. And we see this gruesome description. Now, when I say he fails in a spectacular way, the truth is the word wickedness there is actually just the word that's used for us. It might seem spectacular, but actually it's just you and me. It's just who we are. In many, so many ways, we are not dissimilar to Judas. We're just as resistant to God's grace as Judas. 
Jesus didn't choose us because we're smarter, wiser, or more virtuous than Judas. No, we were just as resistant as Judas, if you follow Jesus. What's happened is, God has irresistibly drawn us into his grace. Not because of anything we have done. And so, we see when someone has refused God's grace, a terrible, terrible end. A betrayal and a terrible end in the field of blood. Of course, the field of blood has two meanings. One is that it's to do with Judas's wickedness and the payment he's paying for his own wickedness. But in another way, there's actually some hope in this field of blood as well because it also represents the innocent blood that was sacrificed by Jesus. Now, it's typical for people these days to say things like, it doesn't make any sense for Jesus to sacrifice his blood on a cross. What does, what does, what does all that mean? Can't he just forgive people? That would just be simpler. But that's not reality, is it? When you forgive someone, it costs. Um, you make the other person suffer, or alternatively, you end up suffering. That's what happens. And if we can't forgive without suffering, how much more must God suffer in order to forgive us? On the cross, in Jesus' suffering, we see God forgiving us, taking what we deserve in the death of Jesus Christ, satisfying his own justice by bearing the penalty for sin. Forgiveness from God will entail, like any other forgiveness, suffering. It'll involve nails and thorns and sweat, and it will involve blood. And so Jesus shed his blood because he knew that we could not be a witness to him. He knew that we could not point people to him. He knew that we would fail. He knew that we need forgiveness. We, he knew that he, we need his mercy. He knew that he had to go before us. And so in Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, as Jesus reigns, we see a wonderful story of God's mercy and God's grace. And it's in the context of that mercy and grace and forgiveness that when we fail, we can come back and say, I've failed. I cannot do this by myself. I need you to empower me because I cannot do it. I, my heart is like Judas's. I need you. And I want to suggest to you that it's to the extent we've kind of grasped that grace and mercy of God and kind of let it just sink deep within us. 
It's the extent to which we kind of let that go deeper with us. It's the extent to which we are then in joy and freedom, able to point people to Jesus in the power of his spirit, able to say, hey, look at Jesus, look at what he's done. Isn't he wonderful? Isn't it magnificent? He reigns from on high and he wants to draw close to you here and now. And so this morning as we start this series and continue to think about what Jesus is doing now, what Jesus is doing now is the same thing. He's reigning from on high. He's sending people out who call, who call other people to himself. And the extraordinary thing is that he's taken a motley crew like us. Sorry to call you motley. Um, a crew like us. And he's working out his purposes in his time, in his kingdom. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.